It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. Just before we start the show, I, I wanted to take a second to say a few words about our, our very kind sponsors. 100 Resilient Cities is a part of the Rockefeller Foundation, which which you'll probably know is one of the world's largest charitable endowments. 100 Resilient Cities is is focused on, on helping cities around the world become more resilient to the, the social, physical and economic challenges of the 21st century. They're doing some excellent projects in terms of you know environmental sustainability, in terms of economic sustainability, and just in terms of you know making life generally better for everyone in cities from Manchester to Miami to Melbourne to Montevideo. You can find out lots more, including reading up on some of those fantastic projects at their website, which is 100resilientcities.org. Anyway, now on with the show. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello? I'm John Edge, and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric podcast. It's a pretty depressing week in, in Britain at the moment. Or the government may be about to fall, but they're not quite falling. And so they're, you know, acting like you know something exciting is going to happen with this vote on the withdrawal agreement, and then they pull that. So we're not having a vote. So the government isn't falling. So it's all very, very annoying. So let's talk about something more cheerful: the complete collapse of the global ecosystem. Uh, thanks to the environmental crisis brought on by 250 years of industrial civilization. To talk about that cheery subject, I am joined by uh, our environmental writer and occasional Skylines guest, uh, India Bork. How are you doing? I'm good. Well, actually, I'm not. I've got a cold, which seems to be a running theme when I come on this podcast. <laughs> One of us always has a cold. Someone out there probably thinks this is just what your voice sounds like. It's kind of, a sort of like husky, <laughs> husky and, and sexy yeah. and deep. Yeah, yeah, it yeah that's probably what's that's probably what's going on. I reckon. No. So talking talking of of cold things mm. that's a hell of a segue as you'll soon see you've been you not that long ago you went to norway you didn't you, been to norway. you went to norway i love that john <laughs> what were you doing in norway i was on a trip to visit their new carbon capture and storage plants and schemes and factories and it's very glamorous in the way that only norway norway's shiny world can be as it's all funded by their exploitation of oil and gas under the north sea so carbon capture and storage sounds like that's probably quite a good thing that is going to save us all are we fine now good question when i went on the trip i was deeply skeptical it has it's bogged down the term carbon capture storage with trump's notion of clean coal so the idea that you can burn as much coal as you want as long as you stick this technology kind of on top of it that will capture the emissions and then you can store them underground or under the north sea in in norway's case 
and also it's like well we could grow a lot more trees and then burn them and then capture the emissions and lower emissions that way and I was so skeptical about it when I went on this trip because it just it does sound a bit good to be true doesn't a bit it? good to be true a bit of a kind of like boon to the fossil fuel industry obviously like there were a lot of oil and gas representatives that we were introduced to on this trip who are massively in support of well you say i say massively in support of the project they could give some more money to it you know they've they've got a lot of money there to verbally to very in support of the project i assume they're like they're, they're exactly. noisily keen on it not so keen they're necessarily putting yeah. their money there but nonetheless exactly so many people see it as a means for the fossil fuel industry to just continue doing what it's doing instead of governments really getting behind 100% behind properly clean energy like you know solar and wind but I did I did revise my opinion during the trip I do think I came away from it just feeling you know what we need every single answer to this crisis and this is one of them and we need it too like we have you know according to the recent UN report 12 years the world needs to reduce emissions by 80 percent in 12 years 80 percent yeah so the uk government is currently committed to reducing by 80 percent by 2050 but they're now revising that they've asked their advisors to kind of have a look at that say do we need to go faster and how do we go faster because the un also said the world needs to reach net zero emissions by 2050 which is just huge and you know you can't get to that without throwing literally every every idea every technology you have at it and ccs is one and it's super useful for things like the cement industry which creates a lot of carbon emissions now you could hope you know i'm sure there's a way to create a kind of cement that you don't need to burn emissions to create but or it doesn't produce emissions when you create it but we haven't invented that well you know it's not on a mass scale yet it's not being used on a mass scale so you just need ccs mm. and the other thing it's really useful which is why i went to oslo was there's a lot of places burn their waste to turn into energy like district for district heating and um, if you put carbon capture storage technology onto those things then you can capture the emissions there as well so you're kind of creating energy out of something bad and then and then harvesting the bad emissions and burying them underground too okay i have a lot of questions arising from the above only one of which is are we all going to die we are aren't we well that's two questions First off, can you give us any insight into what exactly is carbon capture and storage? How does it work? I mean, physically, when you look at it, what is it? When I went to visit the test plant in the kind of very romantic Norwegian fords with beautiful scenery and mountains, they've set up a test plant next to an oil kind of oil refinery. It all looks very Blade Runner-ish. <laughs> Plumes of smoke and and tall steel towers like something out of Lord of the Rings. But essentially, you capture the kind of um, the gas that's released and you funnel it through a chemical solution and that separates the carbon off and turns it into liquid. I am simplifying this massively and <laughs> trying to remember. I'm really um, enjoying the hand gestures. Thank you. So, uh, there, there was like a whole sort of dance move for the sort of removal of the, <laughs> of the emissions. Go on. In- interpretive, interpretive dance, CCS. So you, essentially you end up with a liquid form of CO2, which you can then pump onto ships and the ships sail it out into the middle of the North Sea and then you pump it back down under the earth. What happens to it then? Well, you know, like we take gas and oil out of... So Mm. they do this already. This part of it is actually done already on gas rigs where they just pump emissions back down. So this would kind of be doing that on a bigger scale. So essentially, at the minute, we're sending all our actual physical garbage to Norway because we don't know what to do with it here in the UK. 
so we send loads of it to this plant in Oslo. They like a lot of the stuff there was from the UK. It was crazy. I used to allow kind of supermarket plastic bags and things. They're really smart and turn it into energy to heat their homes with. And we pay them to take it, obviously. But we could also theoretically be sending our waste CO2 to Norway as well for them to store under the North Sea. So Norway is being pretty savvy and getting ahead of the game as usual. Does it stay down there? I mean, you say this is sort of happening in the oil industry more widely, but like, do the emissions literally stay down there for, for evermore as far as we're concerned? Yes. I mean, there is a debate. There needs to be constant and continual research into how safe it is, etc. But it seems pretty, if you just think of it, that there's loads of gas and oil down under there at the minute. And it, unless we take it out, it pretty much stays there. So, so like, does it, it's just the principle in reverse. Does it ever end up in a form we can kind of reuse or is it just like... Well, it's the CO2 gas, so... We haven't yet worked out how to use that as a fuel, really, have we? No. Not to my knowledge. <laughs> OK, let's talk about the waste to energy mm. plants. Oh, Again, they're cool. Sounds, they're really cool. It sounds like kind of a useful thing that, like... I mean, seriously, if you ever visit Oslo, just go on a tour of the waste to energy plant. It's great. It's so much more exciting than possibly anything else you could do in Oslo. You really know how to have fun, don't you? <laughs> Right. seriously you go in and um it's like a viewing platform over this massive room or kind of hallway like a huge huge amphitheater full of full of garbage and this claw that looks like a kind of spider comes along the ceiling and drops down and picks it up and then drops it into the kind of furnace it's wonderful what are the kind of downsides to this i mean again it sounds sort of too good to be true the idea you can just like produce energy from waste is the main downside just that we need a way of dealing with the emissions basically one reason is a lot of nordic countries have much more district heating anyway than we do they're Mm. set up so instead of having individual gas lines to each house you have a more networked system and they've just been doing that for a lot longer and it does lend itself to that so we do need to create more of those structures in the uk which people are looking into but it is these are all big infrastructure projects essentially and we have to do it because if we're going to even if we're going to you know meet our 80 percent target and hopefully we will do far far more than that far quicker we have to it's a massive infrastructure we've got to retro re-retrofit buildings to stop heat escaping we've got to make sure the heat's getting to them efficiently well this was going to be my last question is like an 80 percent reduction by 2030 we're not going to do that are we we're stuffed aren't we I don't know if you've been following the Extinction Rebellion protests that have been going on in London recently. One of their aims is they want the government to promise net zero by 2025 or something. It's something extremely ambitious like that anyway. Most people, yeah, would laugh it off and go, that's mad. I kind of feel two things. One is I think the Committee on Cli- the Independent Committee on Climate Change is looking into this right now and are going to release a report next year that's going to advise the government on what target we can achieve or like a couple of like a range of targets we can achieve how expensive it's going to be because you do have to weigh up you know how much it's going to hurt how much it's going to cost and how much those costs are going to hurt taxpayers like otherwise you end up if you don't do it carefully and in a way that makes people feel protected in other ways you end up with a situation like you have in France with the gilets jaunes and people protesting against fuel tax rises so we need to make this happen and we need to make it happen as fast as possible and I do think we should be doing it aiming to do it before 2050 because if the world has to reach net zero before 2050 it's not developed rich countries like the UK should certainly be aiming to do it a long time before then it's not I'm not questioning whether it's a good idea clearly it's an excellent idea and obviously we should be trying to do this I'm just not convinced politically that this is a thing that is going to yeah I I don't think it's possible to kind of get 
buy into to the sacrifices that have to be made from the public. Yeah. Also, if we've learned anything from from British politics the last couple of years, it's that governments are really not good at telling people stuff they don't want to hear. I would agree that British government's like has not been good, <laughs> but I disagree that it's possible to change. Like this lovely grandma I was interviewing about fracking, you know, she was like, "Well, we all changed to gas when they told us to do that," and you know. There have been big infrastructure changes that because the government has decided it needs to happen, it happens. And and actually energy bills have come down um, in recent years. You know, the government does sometimes is not good at its messaging and green energy has helped bring it down. Like there's lots of ways that, Mm. you know, insulation of homes, it all reduces energy bills. So it is about how you frame it. And with the fuel tax, which the uh, French protesters are angry about is a good example because, yeah, if you just raise someone's tax on your petrol or diesel, and this is importantly, it's on diesel, that was going to really hurt people who are forced to use their cars to travel for their jobs. But if you have better access to your public transport, if you make it easier for people to work from home or decentralized or however it's going to be, then there are ways of, there are ways around it and that can actually improve people's quality of life overall. Okay, well, as we've been hinting, a lot of this comes down to infrastructure. So this is me pivoting to an interview I did about infrastructure with a guy called, uh, I'm going to horribly mispronounce his his name, Sebastian Mayer, who is the Chief Resilience Officer at the City of Paris. So I'm Sebastian Mayer, the Chief Resilience Officer for the City of Paris that is belonging to the 100 Resilient Cities Network uh, that was launched by the Rockefeller Foundation. And you guys have recently unveiled what was described as the city's first heat-adapted schoolyard. Is that correct? Yes, actually, we're more using the word resilient schoolyards than just heat-adapted. It is definitely heat-adapted. That's one of the goals. But that's not the only one, because, you know, the resilience approach is as much as possible holistic. So we're trying to tackle different kind of issues through the schoolyard, uh, heat waves, but also social cohesion, health and so on. Okay, so there's quite a lot to kind of discuss here. Let's start with a, a basic question. like Why are you looking at schoolyards for your resilience strategy? At first, the entry point, can you hear the, the bell? <laughs> I can. Well, it, it gives it atmosphere. You can hear the, the real sounds of Paris in the background. Exactly. So. That's the bell of the, of the city hall. And my, my <laughs> office is just behind. The entry point of this project was heatwave. Uh, in June 17, for the first time in history, Paris faced a heatwave during school time, usually Heat waves were occurring in summer uh, when children are not in school. And in this period, in June 17, we realized how much our schools were not adapted to climate change. It was very hot in the schools, but in the schoolyards without any shade, the one who that didn't have any trees, it was even forbidden for the children to go outside because when, you know, a schoolyard under the sun is only made with asphalt, uh, it's an oven and temperature reaches 55 to 60 Celsius degrees. So it's dangerous for the children to go out. So we have almost 700 schools in Paris. And if we want them to be ready 
for climate change events that are going to happen more and more in the next decades, uh, we definitely need to start from now to adapt this infrastructure. So we decided to, uh, at first, create cool places, cool islands in the schoolyards to protect the children. Sure. So what, is, what do these kind of cool islands look like? You say that the, the, initially the schoolyards are, are very asphalt-based. They're kind of, that presumably reflects a lot of heat. What did you do to, to kind of adapt them? So at first, we replace the ground material. No more asphalt in Paris. Uh, asphalt is one of the worst material regarding resilience because it participates a lot in the heat island effect during heat waves. It's not pervious at all, so it doesn't help us to have a better rainwater management to prevent flooding risk, for instance. So we replace the material by a new kind of material that is still kind of concrete so far, but that is pervious and that we can paint clearer. Uh, and if the color of the ground is clearer, the heat island effect decreases. So we change the material, the ground material, we plant trees as much as possible, uh, waiting for the trees to grow up, we create artificial shade to protect the children. We green the schoolyard as much as possible with part of full soil, pedagogical gardens, EV plants uh, on the walls. Uh, we try to have really greener places instead of the schoolyards that are now only made with concrete and asphalt. We also bring water in the middle of the schoolyard with pedagogical fountains that are going to uh, teach the children about the interest for ecology to drink tap water instead of bottled water. And this kind of fountain are also going to be able to sparkle the children when it's going to be really hot, which is fun uh, in the same time and refreshing. So the idea is really pedagogy and fun because we're also taking advantage of this program to teach the children about climate change consequences. They've been involved in the design of the school. We set up workshops uh, with the children themselves, their teachers, the parents, in order for them to design themselves the school. And that's a great occasion to talk about climate change, about its consequences in Paris, about the way they can mitigate and adapt. So this is the first pillar of this project regarding climate change. So if this is the first pillar, what's, what are the later pillars? What else is on the agenda? The second one is that schools are the most dense public facility network uh, in Paris. Known Parisian is living further than 200 meters from a school. All the Parisians know where is the closest school. It's really the perfect resilience spot. And once we invest public money to create cool islands for the children during the day, we want to offer these school places to the vulnerable people around the schools after school time, after six o'clock at evening, during weekends, to protect health. For instance, the elderly would be able to benefit from a cool place just close to their home. And this can save lives. You know, in 2017, during three days of heat wave, Paris uh, had 400 
50 deaths because of heat waves. It's mostly elderly uh, persons. So we're going to offer this new place to protect health and the vulnerable people uh, in all the different areas uh, during heat waves. But that's not enough. Third pillar, social cohesion is a key to build resilience within cities. Knowing your neighbor, being aware about social vulnerabilities around the place you live, the place you work, is a huge key for resilience in case of major shock, catastrophe or a disaster. And Paris is one of the most dense city in the world. Uh, there is a lack of places for the people to do things together, to convene, to have picnics. to, uh, And in the same time, we have 80 hectares of schoolyards perfectly adapted to welcome people, but that are closed to the people all the time, all the weekends, all the vacation. So instead of creating new places that are going to cost a lot, especially because we don't have place enough, we want to maximize the benefits of this kind of project and open these schoolyards during weekends to the neighborhood for the people to do things together, to uh, uh, to celebrate uh, birthdays for the children, to uh, make sports, to uh, have culture uh, or just conviviality moments. And so potentially we have 700 spots that we can open to the people to do things together. So social cohesion, health, climate change mixed within one unique project, one unique budget, one unique process. That's the key of and the success of the resilience approach. It's very interesting that you say that you're going to move to open some of these schoolyards to, to the public at weekends. I mean, how much green space is there in, in Paris at the moment? I don't know exactly the number of uh, hectares. We we have parks, uh, of course, and we have big ones, smaller ones. But the thing is that density is so high. Paris has the same density than Mumbai, for instance. So thanks to the great uh, Osman architect, we can see it in Paris. But density is huge. So parks are crowded uh, at weekend uh, or in spring. So there is concretely a lack of place for people to do things together. So we're not going to open all of them. We're going to open them only if the school community agrees. So it it's mainly depends on governance, local governance and how the different stakeholders agree on the project. Sure. So what are the other things that you think Paris needs to do in the longer term to kind of prepare itself for how the climate may change? I mean, do you need to think about changes in the infrastructure or anything? Actually, there are three main pillars in Paris resilience strategy that are also the same in Paris climate plan and so on. There are three main levers to get more prepared to climate change and what's going to happen in the coming decades. At first, counting on the people, training people, informing people, involving people in our policies. We need to get prepared, the local authority, but including the people, the businesses, the local shop owners. Uh, this is a, a strong, a huge key for the future. The second lever, of course, is infrastructures, urban planning, architecture. We need to change the way we build or repair, adapt the city. 
Paris is a patrimonial city, all made with asphalt and concrete, not pervious at all. And we definitely need to shift this into a more pervious city, a, a greener city, in order to tackle climate change or to reduce the effects of heat uh, waves. We know that in Paris, we're going to face by mid-century heat waves that are going to reach more than 50 to 55 Celsius degrees under shade. That's the temperature we have now near the Dead Sea in summer. And in a city with air pollution and all these walls and not enough green space, it's completely unbearable. So we need to change the way we build the city. And the third one is obviously governance, because the city won't be able to do all this by itself. The city is, of course, interconnected to other territories, other municipalities. We need to involve more the private sector. We need to uh, think differently about the tools we're using to modelize our projects and so on. So people, infrastructure and governance are, are three main keys to get more prepared to adapt to climate change. Talking of working more closely with the surrounding municipalities, given the audience of, of this particular podcast, it would be remiss of me not to ask about uh, something to do with transport. Is the Grand Prix Express train plan still happening, do you know? Are, are there still these sort of big suburban train lines uh, that are being built at the moment? Yeah, that's the biggest project in the whole century, uh, for, for almost the, the whole country. The work is, is uh, ongoing uh, at the moment. The public work is going to, of course, to last uh, years. But that's a really important project because so far, all Paris development was sought in French, we, stay, we say, uh, as a star with a middle. So all the public transport lanes were converging to a unique point, which is Paris Centre. Uh, this new metro line, Grand Paris Express, will be a, a circle, a ring around Paris that is going to interconnect other territories around, and that's really important. But that's not enough. Uh, that's one of the keys. But for instance, in Paris resilience strategy, in order to tackle several issues in the same time, like air pollution and many other ones, we also propose to develop co-working center and working at home solutions for all these tens of thousands of people who spend hours in transportation, whether it's in car, public transportation, most of the administrative work now, thanks to technology, could be really, people could work differently, not the whole week from home or co-working centers, but at least a couple of weeks a day. This would be huge to reduce pressure on public transportation. So we need to deal it with other territories and it's in their own interest to have new activities, even if it's 30, 50, 100 kilometers from Paris. That's one of the targets of Paris resilience strategy. Paris is a sort of centred city in a way London isn't. London has historically people have tended to live in the suburbs and commute in, whereas Paris, the most desirable districts have generally been in the centre and the suburbs have been have been less desirable. Do you think a better transport system and all this working from home and so on, do you think it could change that? Do you think living outside the city could ever become the, the most desirable place to be in Paris? Or do you think it's Paris is always going to be inside the walls is always going to be the most attractive place? That's the challenge. Paris development has to be sought now outside of Paris border. 
we have to see greater Paris, definitely. And that's a key because, you know, Paris is one, that's paradoxical that Paris is one of the smallest capital city in the world mm. for its superficie and number of inhabitants. If we think about the urban area, the metropolitan area that we can reach the size of London or, or other big cities, but just Paris center is, is just a neighborhood of London, you know? Yeah, it's really small. Mm. So that's definitely a key and a project that is supported the mayor of Paris to strengthen greater Paris, the metropolitan area, and to, to think about the development at this level and not anymore at Paris level. Of course, it's different. The historical center will always be different than other kind of neighborhood, but as it is in London. And there are other neighborhoods in London that are as much attractive as the historical centers or neighborhoods than the other ones. So I think that's really important for the future. Depending on how you count, you get very different different answers about which is larger, Paris or London. And the fact it's so difficult to come up with a de- definitive answer feels kind of apt, given the, the sort of friendly competition in Anglo-French relations over the last couple of hundred years. So, Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember what is the official number of inhabitants in London, but Paris city is just 2.2 million inhabitants. The greater Paris, Paris metropolitan area is 7 million. And the region, Ile-de-France, which is the biggest region, is 14 million. So you have the different size. So I don't remember how big London is supposed to be. <laughs> Just under 9 million now. Okay. That's, that's greater London, where again, the, the boundaries are, are slightly arbitrary, but it's obviously a much more expansive definition than the boundaries of Paris. So. All right. Anyway, we could, we could keep talking about numbers all day because that's the kind of... <laughs> That's that's how I get my kicks. But uh, I probably shouldn't do that. I would just instead say thank you very much for your time today. It's been really great to talk to you, Sebastian. You're welcome. Mostly welcome. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
So we're back in there, back in the podcast bunker, which is, even by its normal standards, it's particularly shambolic in here today. Before we start recording, we can't work out who's been, who's done this, though we have, we have our suspicions, not naming any names. But anyway, that last conversation was all about green infrastructure. I've been doing some research on a particular kind of green infrastructure which is vertical forests. Do you know what a vertical forest is, India? Tell me, tell me. So it's basically... I think it's when you plant trees on houses, but... Basically, yeah, but skyscrapers rather than houses. So, like, there's a couple of these everyone gets all very excited about. There's one called, I think, Bosco Verticale in Milan, another one Central Park in Sydney, and they're, you know, it's literally high-rises, skyscrapers with trees all down. Singapore are quite big on it as well. I think so. They're definitely moving in that direction. So I've been doing a piece on this, not for City Metric, don't tell anyone. And I kind of got into this thinking that it was all going to be nonsense and basically what's known as greenwashing, mm. where it's all, you know, it's basically a, a publicity stunt. And it kind of, you know, there's an element of that. But everyone I've spoken to says it is actually quite good. Like it does genuinely, like it helps with biodiversity by providing places for, you know, birds and um, bees and bugs and so on to kind of enjoy. Excellent. It doesn't do much for air pollution because it's actually like there's just not that much surface area. But it's good for stuff like uh, stormwater, dealing with that, the kind of thing we were talking about with Sebastian just now. How is it good for stormwater if you've got a tree on top of a skyscraper? Porous surfaces. What, so the leaves take in the stormwater? Well, also, there's dirt up there. It's just like, oh, if you dirt. kind of... Okay, so cool. this, this, idea, this concept of the mineralised city where everything is basically covered in, like, metal or mm, concrete Yeah, it's or easy something. to wash off, sure. All the water runs straight off and then okay. drains flood okay. and you're in trouble. Whereas, like, you're better off if you're kind of... If there's just something, a more Some absorbent surface. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, no, everyone I've spoken to says they're actually probably quite good. And, okay, it's very early days. But if you want more people to live in, in a denser environment and to sort of feel like they're, it's a nice place to live, this is the kind of thing we should be doing more of. So uh, are, you, are you excited about vertical forests? So excited. I, I would tell. love to live. Wouldn't you love to live in, like, a skyscraper where not only do you get, like, a really cool view, but you have, like, trees to live in? Oh, it's like living in a treehouse. Although, like, apparently one of the downsides you have to deal with is either, you know, if you're living in one of these things, either you need to be willing to let people through your flat to, like, tend a tree occasionally or, or, or someone's just going to abseil down past a window at random. They do that to clean it anyway, don't they? Yeah. Clean windows bit, and guess. stuff. But it might be a bit confusing. Yeah. My, my first thought that springs to mind, reservation, is what if there's, like, a big storm and some of the trees fall down? Like, that's a problem anyway in storms in life. What if they're then falling from like a very large height? Not great, certainly. I think these these are not like full size trees. They're not like kind of, sort of London planes that you no, can actually like bonsai fall trees. Of. I mean, I want, saplings, a, I want a full, I want an oak outside my, you know, twentieth floor apartment. We we all want one things. day. We can all dream. Are you pro tree? I'm extremely pro tree, but as ever, I'm skeptical of the UK government being pro tree. In those I'm term, shocked to learn that. Anyone can be sceptical of our (laughs) beloved government. So in the last budget, the autumn budget, they didn't mention climate change once, but they did mention plastics because that's the that's the thing everyone thinks they can solve now and they did also mention tree planting and i have a suspicion that tree planting is going to become the new kind of greenwashy thing that the government's like obviously it's great to do we of course need to plant more trees especially to capture emissions and like deal with the effects of climate change like flooding etc but the government going so they want to plant they've promised 10 million in funding for street trees plus 50 million worth of carbon credits I spoke to someone and they were like, oh, so they want to tra- plant around 10 million more trees in woods. But 
10 million trees over 30 years is an annual average, bear with me, of just 167 hectares. And their government's already promised it's going to plant 6,000 hectares a year. Mm. And 167 a year versus 6,000 a year is is a big shortfall. So like they make all these promises about giving money to help plant trees and they're not even meeting their own tree planting targets at the minute. There is this kind of whole thing in public policy of numbers that sound big Mm. but are in fact small. Exactly. It's a huge thing. Like on a totally different subject like housing, this happens all the time where it's like the government has promised an extra Mm. 5,000 council houses. It's like, well, that's, you know, if you want a council house, Mm. you only need one. The fact there's like 4,000 999 spare that's that's brilliant mm. but if you're looking across the entire country's housing need we're meant to be building a quarter of a million homes every year mm. that's nothing mm. it's not literally nothing but it's a tiny amount and it sounds like this is these numbers are sort of in that same category right yeah house planting is your soapbox tree planting is mine okay and this I... is the great thing about the vertical forest is you can do both at once you see <laughs> oh my god it's like the venn diagram of yeah. our interests <laughs> And my other reservation is, it's great they want to plant more trees in cities. Most of us live in cities. It, as you've said, they're good for many reasons. But is that going to make us less interested or, or, or kind of blind us slightly to the actual massive tree planting that needs to happen in rural places, often very rural places? And the big debate that's going to come, or is already underway, between farmers and foresters who have historically been a little bit at odds over kind of access to to funding especially from Mm. the eu because farmers like growing things and their animals to eat things and foresters like you know planting trees which compete for space and compete for farmland and there's a and if the government wants after brexit to start shifting subsidies away from just producing food to kind of public goods services to nature etc that's going to encourage tree planting but farmers are not so farmers are a bit apprehensive and i do think there's a lot more that needs to be talked about in terms of different ways of planting i was talking to someone earlier about how you can plant trees and keep animals grazing around them it takes kind of longer to grow them but you end up it has all kinds of benefits there's so many Mm. benefits to actually trying to combine forestry and agriculture instead of seeing them as kind of as competitors presumably there's a sort of silo problem here not in the kind of you know grain silo thing but like you know farmers just want land for grazing foresters just want land to grow trees for wood on right yeah and also Um, when grants are given it is given for those quite separated entities which means that historically it's been hard for farmers for people to do both when actually it might be best for the environment and lots of kinds mm. of things to do to and for the land use to do both so. well t- this this kind of makes me think of going back to the beginning of our conversation well like, i think one of the reasons we don't have vast amounts of energy from waste plants in this country is because the big six energy companies don't have any interest in that kind of small-scale production mm. the people who would benefit from it are not the ones in a position mm. to deliver exactly. it and this is this seems to be a problem right across the piece it is which is why i'm really not convinced that we're going to save the world by 2020 2050 rather but on the upside Brexit will kill us all long before then. So. And now we've talked about it on City Metric, everyone will know and it'll just get fixed. Yeah, so, all right, you lot. Don't take too much time off at Christmas, you've got work to do. See you next time. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the new Statesman City site. 
It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show, and I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.